Good morning. It really is a joy for me uh, to be here with you. I grew up just across the Long Island Sound in Connecticut, and we'll actually be moving back there in about three weeks. So my family, uh, my wife, my two little girls will be moving to up here in the Northeast to join you in serving this part of the world, and uh, we'll be starting a church there in Fairfield. So many of you who have been here from the early years will know what we are about to embark on, and so I would ask for your prayers. As Adriana said, we've known each other for a long time, and uh, I'm deeply grateful to this church. Uh, You all are helping us financially in the starting of uh, our church in Fairfield, and so it's, it's been already just a really sweet uh, time to be here with you and to worship with you. Being out here near the beach, it reminded me of uh, just a moment just last summer um, that helps me and I hope will help you get into the text that we're going to look at today in the book of Mark. Uh, my family, we were celebrating my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. We were actually down in North Carolina Beach and I learned how to body surf from my dad. It's kind of, that's, it was one of these signature things about my father was... Uh, his love for the ocean, his love for body surfing. And so here he is at 74 years old, um, out on the, uh, you know, kind of off the coast in North Carolina, and there's a hurricane that's approaching uh, North Carolina. So the waves actually uh, was pretty rough, the surf was pretty rough, and he actually got caught in a riptide. And so I'm actually on the beach, and I can see my dad, who never would I picture as a weak individual, uh, being carried out further and further from the from the coast. Thankfully, my brother-in-law was close close enough, was able to kind of grab a hold of him together. They were able to make it close enough into um, kind of the edge to stand up and kind of walk back in. Uh, But it was was one of those moments that for the next several weeks, I found myself affected by uh, this moment of this disturbing reality of my dad, the stable force in the world, uh, revealing his mortality. Turn with me to Mark. Because what we're going to find here in Mark 9, even you might have moments like that, either in your own life, whether it's a family member or something that happened in your life, but where you are struck and everything you thought about the world began to maybe get a little bit unrivaled, maybe greatly unraveled. And that's exactly what we find in Mark. If you've got a pew Bible, um, you could read it there. It's also in your bulletin, the pew Bible. It's on page 844. Let me read our text and help bring you into what it is that um, is happening here. What had happened in this passage, excuse me, was that right before this, just before we're about to read, is really the climax of the book of Mark in many respects. It's the center point of the whole story, the turning point, where in Mark 8, Jesus and the disciples are up in this other higher part in Israel, and Peter professes, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the promised Savior of the world. In essence, is what he's saying. And it's the first time in Mark that that's stated. It should be, you know, fireworks going off, that this is the moment. And Jesus looks at them and he says, Yes, you are right. And yet the Son of Man will die. The Son of Man will fall into the hands of sinful men and will go to a cross. And then he tells them, all the disciples, and you too will go to a cross. You too must take up your cross and follow me. Up to this point, it's been a triumph story. Jesus is stepping in, taking names, exorcisms, miracles, feeding the 5,000. I mean, he dominating Satan himself. I mean, in Mark, it is, this is the moment. This is a triumph story. And now suddenly in Mark 8, you get the climax. Jesus is the Messiah, 
And then Jesus says, and yes, you're going to take up your cross. The disciples are struck by that. It, it, it really doesn't make any sense. And you have to try to step in, even to Mark's thinking as he's writing this, to help you grasp, as we get to Mark 9, what's, what's going to happen. It just doesn't make any sense. Take up a cross, Jesus? I thought we were going to take up swords. I thought this whole book, this whole point of the Messiah is now finally the Jews are going to be on top, everyone else is going to be on bottom, and we're going to win. That, in many respects, is what their thinking is. That can be what our thinking tends to be. I'm going to come to Jesus and everything's going to be better. This magician's going to snap his fingers and my whole life is going to be better. And suddenly, at some point in time, you get enough into the Bible stories that you realize, wait, he, he's telling me to come and die? He himself went to a cross? I want you to realize how unsettling this is because it begs this question. Where do we find the power to persevere in a calling to come and die? How will we as Christians find the ability and the power to continue to live a life of self-surrender to the living God when that self-surrender at times is painful and bitter and challenging? Where will we find that power? Thankfully, God the Spirit through Mark here in our passage, he, he wants to speak that to us. He wants to tell you that you will find the power to persevere when you will experience Jesus in all of his glory. I know that might sound simplistic, might sound like it can't be that easy, but as we look in the text today, you'll see that that is what Mark is getting at. That's what the Spirit wants you to, wants you to see. That if you will see Jesus for truly, who he truly is today, you will have the power to take up your cross and follow him into tomorrow. Let me just say that one more time because that really is the theme of this whole passage. If you will see Jesus, if you will see him for who he truly is today, that's how you will have the power to take up your cross and follow him into tomorrow. Now in light of that, let's read our passage. I'm actually going to start just right in verse, the first verse there of chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man, but that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? 
But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Just another normal day in the life of Jesus. Here he takes his key disciples up to the top of this high mountain, begins to shine with light like nobody has ever seen. Two dead guys are there for a little discussion. The cloud falls upon them, and the voice of God speaks forth. Just another normal day. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic because what you see here is, is of such significant, profound importance. Like to try to grasp how big this moment is in the Bible. You have Moses, the lawgiver, the, 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 the herald of all of the first five books of the Old Testament. All Jews would look back to Moses as the founder of their religion. And then Elijah, the chief prophet he was considered. And here he is there at the moment, the three key disciples who represent in many respects all of the New Testament church. Then God himself descends within a cloud and he speaks. In Revelation, the promise at the end end of all days, Revelation 21, what all things are going to culminate in, and the books are going to be closed up and everything's wrapped up, and here's what it says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's what's coming, and so here in the Mount of Transfiguration, you get this cloud descending, and you get a glimpse of that ultimate moment when God himself will be there. So, just I I want you to see how big this moment is. Really, all of the Bible in one instance, that's, that's the way to think about what's happening in the Transfiguration, from the Pentateuch and Moses, all that he wrote, all through the prophets, all through the New Testament writing, all the way up to Revelation. That's what you have here at the moment of the transfiguration, a huge moment. And notice how it ends in verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. You, you have to love the Bible. You have to love what the Spirit of God can speak through a man writing this tale. This is where he's, this key moment, it is all, all of the Bible, right now in the transfiguration, Jesus only. All this cosmic, world-shaping revelation, gone in an instant, and they're left with Jesus. And that is the point. Jesus only. Jesus plus nothing else is the power you will need for your daily walk. That is what Mark is trying to tell you. That is what the Bible is trying to communicate to you. And I have to ask as we begin, as we dive into this text, as you begin to think about tomorrow and the next day, have you had this moment? Have you had that moment where everything else fades away and all is left is Jesus only? Just this week, I was working on my house in Fairfield trying to get ready for our move. And I had a friend who grew up in a church but now has gone the way of Zen Buddhism and uh, various transcendental meditation and lots of different... uh, thought processes. And he looked at me and basically said, well, but how can you say that Christianity is the one flavor over all other flavors that are out there? And my answer was, it was simple. It didn't feel, I almost felt not very intellectual, not very kind of deep. I just said to him, listen, I have never been unsatisfied with the answers that Jesus gives me to all the questions I've ever had. Jesus only. I haven't needed. I've done, I've studied Buddhism actually. I've been to various parts of the world. But I basically said, I'm sure there's other things out there. 
Yeah, I haven't ever had to go any further because when I come to Christ and I see Jesus only, every other answer, every other question I've ever had has been resolved in him. That's what Mark is trying to invite us in, into. That's what this passage is about. Let's dig in now and try to grasp what is being said. When the curtain is pulled back, what is it that we're learning about this Christ, about Jesus in this passage? What I want you to see and what the Bible is telling us is that Jesus is the shining servant. That's the first point that I want you to see. The goal is for us to see Jesus only, so that's what I now want to do is lift our eyes today as a church that we might see him, and Mark wants you to see that he is the shining servant. Throughout Jewish history, as recorded in the Old Testament, there are prophecies telling Israel that this servant was going to come. This servant was going to lead them into all the promises of God. The Jews would think of him as the anointed one or the Messiah. That's the language they would use. Christ basically means that anointed one. And the reference is this thought towards this servant of God's people who would come. Moses himself wrote this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So the Jews expected this Messiah to have this similar ministry as Moses. They even had some notion that maybe he would come to Mount Sinai itself. Mount Sinai is the place where Moses met with God and received the law. And so they're expecting that maybe the Messiah himself would be on this high mountain and he would lead God's people into all of God's promises. Well, here we have Jesus on a high mountain. It's not for just a random thought that Mark put that in. No, there's a, there's a, a, a parallelism that Mark wants you to see about what's happening here in this moment what Mark is getting at, what the Spirit of God is getting at, what, this, what, what the Word of God wants you to see is that here in Jesus we have a better Moses. A better high mountain. Jesus, the glorious one. The writer of Hebrews, he referred to Jesus this way. Jesus, the Son, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. This is what Mark has in mind and what, as he's writing what happened here passage keeps going, though. It goes beyond Jesus just being a better Moses. The shining servant is more than that because Moses isn't alone. Elijah is there, too. I alluded to this, but the way the Jewish mind, the way they thought about the Old Testament is they called it the law and the prophets. So Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah was always associated as the primary prophet. So for Moses and Elijah to be here in this deferential conversation with Jesus of Nazareth, do you see what a profound statement is happening here? Any Jew reading this would just be shocked that Moses and Elijah would be talking to Joe Shmo, Jesus of Nazareth. This does not make any sense in their thinking. And Mark is saying, this is the glorious one. This is the shining servant. Do you not see, all you Israel, all you who would ever look to this passage, that this is the shining servant? The law and the prophets all point to him, Jesus only. I want you to listen to how the Old Testament ends. The last passage in the Old Testament is in Malachi chapter 4. And I just want you to listen to how it ends. And just, I, I, tell, just imagine, can you not hear Mark in chapter 9? So let me read it. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. 
You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's how the Old Testament ends. Mark has to have this in his mind as he's, a, as he's hearing and writing to us what's happening in the transfiguration. Moses is there. Remember the law. The Moses, the lawgiver. Elijah is there. He's the prophet who went before us. So who is this? Jesus only? He must be. He must be that shining servant. He must be the Messiah here to lead us into the son of righteousness rising upon us. Here's Jesus glorious in all his otherworldly power. Mark describes it, that he shines with a white light, a purity that no earthly bleach could obtain. Any of you moms or dads who have ever done any cleaning? Mark, he can't come up with any other illustration just to go, no earth, this is whiter than any white you've ever known. That's how Jesus is shining forth, this son of righteousness shining upon us. Now, how would you respond? This, again, you got to love the Bible. It gives you all the ins and outs and true, accurate depictions of humanity. How would you respond? Well, look at what Peter does. He's so confused. He's bungling, bumbling. He doesn't know what's happening. And you can imagine, he's so disillusioned. On one level, Jesus the Messiah, I got it. You are the Christ. And then Jesus says, you got to take up a cross and die. What? I, what does that even mean? And then now suddenly he's there. The presence of God, the voice of God, Elijah, Moses. I mean, you can only imagine what's going on in his mind. He has really no idea what's happening. So, his response. Let's build tabernacles, Jesus. Now, I imagine as you read that, that doesn't make any sense. It just seems like a complete non sequitur, right? Well, when Moses went up onto the high mountain on Sinai and was given the law of God, the very next thing that they did was they built the tabernacle. Given the law, now with the law of God, we're going to establish a place for God's presence to be amongst us as the people of God. Let's build a tabernacle. So Peter, it's a good Jew. Of course, this is now it. This is the moment. We got Moses, we got Elijah, and now we got the Messiah. Not just one tabernacle, three tabernacles. What Peter is envisioning here is that now is the day that Malachi had told us about. This is the moment. Peter's making actually a a very appropriate, it makes sense in light of what's happening, that this is the day of the Lord. And so what he's envisioning is they're going to build these tabernacles, three of them. Moses will be in one, a little one. Elijah will be in one, a little one. The Messiah will have the big one, and we're going to rule the world. That really is what Peter has in mind. Because that's what you read. If you, re- if you just read the Old Testament, that's what you think is what's going to happen. Jesus the King is going to show up, the Messiah the King is going to show up, and we're going to rule the world now. This is the day. Now, this might seem, you might look at Peter and you might tend to go, oh, silly Peter, I'm nothing like him. But here, let me, let me just apply this. This is all of our tendencies. We have these defining, profound moments with God. Maybe it's just some spiritual moment where we think we understand what happened. And from that moment on, we try to define all the rest of our life. We try to live out of that experience, out of that moment, and make that the day. Try to make that the moment. 
We go on trying to recreate. Maybe it was, I don't know what your background is, but from retreat to retreat, from conference to conference. Maybe even it can be from Sunday to Sunday. But then meanwhile, there's six other days of the week that we've got to live. How do we do that? How do we have the power to continue on persevering, not just on Sunday morning, but beyond through Sunday afternoon, just to drive home a lot of times for me and my family? Listen to what happens. As the words are on his lips, the glory of God descends. The cloud of God comes down on this mountain. So if that's not rebuke enough, the disciples fall on their face, and out of this cloud speaks the voice of God the Father. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Stop talking, Peter, and start listening, because there's so much about Jesus that you still don't see. Yes, you're getting it right that he is the Messiah, but you still don't understand so much about him. Primarily, what God wants them to see right this moment is that he is the supreme son of God. This is so much bigger, Peter, than what you understand. I've hinted at the connection here between the transfiguration and this idea and revelation of this eternal dwelling place of God, this idea of the tabernacle. This cloud throughout Israel's history was the cloud that led Israel from Egypt all the way out into the promised land came as a cloud during the day and a fire at night. This cloud descended upon this tabernacle when they finally got it built and it was consecrated. It descended upon the temple as it was built and consecrated. The cloud represents the very physical presence of God himself amongst us. It's called the Shekinah glory. So this cloud falling now on Christ and speaking about him, what, what the Bible is saying to all of us is that here, in Jesus is the tabernacle. It's not a building. It's not just some location. It's this person. It's my beloved son. All of your experience of me is going to come through your experience of Jesus Christ. That's what God the Father is saying. It's more than that, though. In the book of John, the very beginning, John uses this similar language and this similar notion of how God's presence will be with us in Jesus. John says this, The word became flesh, and lived among us. The actual word he used is it says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It came and was in this space and time of Jesus. And in his life, we can have the very presence of God. We can know him intimately. We can dwell with him because he will come and live with us. It's more though than just a location for us to meet with God. What God the Father is saying here is that this This is more than this. This isn't just my presence. This is me. This is my son, and in him is the full, complete expression of all that I am. So even here, you get a glimpse of the Trinity. I'm not going to go into all of that, but you see this Christian, throughout all of of, uh, Christian uh, theology, this notion that God exists as three in one. It's not just about a place where you can meet with God, but it's God himself here amongst us in Jesus. I wonder if you've ever had the thought, what, what would God just say to me? If I actually got just to have that, to hear the voice of God, to, for him to come and speak to me, maybe you've ever wondered that, and thought, man, I, I believe if God would just speak to me. Well, here's, here's your clear, clear answer. I can definitively tell you. This is what God would say. He would tell you about Jesus, his son, and then he would command you to listen to him. There aren't many moments that we have this definitive, audible voice of God coming forth into the life of an individual, but you have it right here. And God says 
to Peter and the other disciples. This is my son, listen to him. And that's what God would say to you. He would tell you about Jesus. It's what I know this church has done regularly in your life. What I hope to do in Fairfield is to go as an ambassador on behalf of the living God and just tell people about Jesus and then invite them to come and listen to him. Approaching kind of the most defining moment here in the passage. And this is what I want to ask. And it's an important question to always be asking as you're reading the Bible. Why now? Why does God the Father show up in the cloud of his presence and command the disciples to listen to Jesus? Now, out of all the other moments that have happened up to this point in Mark, why right now? Does God speak? What is it that particularly that God is, why he feels like I must come in this moment and declare, listen to Jesus? This is where the context of chapter 9 is so critical. Why I think all of this is about how we are going to find the power to persevere in our cross-bearing. Because right before this moment, Jesus has said this to his disciples, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. He said to them, if any man wants to follow me, he must take up his cross and follow me. He said to them, your understanding of the Messiah, and, many, and in many respects, your understanding of what it is to even walk with God is upside down. I've come to die on behalf of others. I haven't come to triumph. I haven't come to destroy. I've come to offer myself as a sacrifice to all others. And so what you see here in Mark 9 is this amazing reality that we will never understand the Messiah unless God will speak and speak to us and, describe, and help us understand what this means. It's so upside down in our thinking. The idea that by going up, we actually got to go down. The idea that to live, we actually have to die. We'll never get that. Unless God himself will speak it into our hearts. God is validating for the disciples, for us, that yes, Jesus is the shining servant, the supreme son, but that he also is the suffering savior. That God himself must come, dwell amongst us, and then die on a cross. That's what God wants them to listen to and to embrace and to hold tightly to. It's so difficult to embrace this, that the Almighty God has to die. There's whole religions completely basically built around the notion that this cannot be true. The complete rejection of Christ in many religions of the world is because he died. This cannot be God. How could God come and die? Why would God come and die? It's an upside-down religion. Here's the way one writer says this. Um, Jesus goes on, he explains how he wants them to keep it a secret. Maybe you read that in Mark, and it's, it's always kind of confused me a little bit. Why Jesus would do these miracles, he says, shh, don't tell anybody. What? You just like raised somebody from the dead. Are you kidding me? I'm going to tell everybody. Are you, how big will our church be in like one week? Of course I'm going to go tell everybody. And here we actually understand why Jesus regularly was telling people to don't, no, no, don't go and tell anybody. What he's getting at is this upside-down religion. If you think it's about triumph, if you think it's just about physical healing, it's just about raising from the dead, you're never going to understand that I must come and die. You're never going to understand that you must go and die for others. 
So he says here, he tells them, keep this a secret. As they're coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. This is verse 9. Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. What, he, what Jesus is getting at is that you'll never really get the purpose of my ministry until you see me die and rise again. It's only after the resurrection that you can understand where the real triumph is going to come from. The way I love to say it is that before glory comes the cross. You see it in Jesus' life, you see it in all of our life, that's why we're invited to come and die. Before glory comes the cross. That is the way of Christianity. If you want the glory, you want your life to be saved, you must lose it. That is the upside down, backwards nature of Christianity that Jesus is inviting us to. Before glory comes the cross, the cross and the resurrection are the only vantage point from which Jesus' life and ministry can be understood. So even here, after confirming Malachi 4, confirming that he is the Messiah, Jesus reminds them again that the way of glory is the way of the cross. Brothers and sisters, I'm convinced in my own life and I'm convinced in yours that this is the most important part of this sermon. The most important part of this text. Why all this revelation of Jesus' great glory, all of his transcendent sonship now? Why do we need to see Jesus in all of his glory? Because the answer Mark is leading us to is this. There's no way you will take up your cross and walk the way of self-surrender without seeing Jesus like this. Do you follow that? Those of you who don't know Christ, you'll never embrace his call to you to lay your life down until you see him in all of his glory. Those of you who know Christ and yet you're piddling around with things of the world and you're unwilling to lay them down, you're unwilling to die for them on behalf of others, your wife or your children, let alone your neighbors, the only way you'll be willing to take up that cross, whatever it might be in your life, and follow Jesus into that living death is when you see him in all of his glory. And what's so beautiful and helpful is what you need to understand is that this is so difficult to take up your cross and follow Jesus. This is not a simple thing. It's so difficult. It needs the voice of God raining forth in the cloud, speaking into your heart, and him saying, listen to him. You need to hear God tell you that. That's how difficult it is. This isn't just something, oh, you wake up in the morning and go, I think I'll follow Jesus today. That's just not how it works. According to Mark, it ain't going to happen. You read all the disciples' lives, you read Peter's kind of failures. No, it's not going to happen until God speaks into your heart. Until God declares to you who Jesus is and invites you to listen to him. It begs the question for all of us. Have you seen Jesus like this? And I've been praying this for you. I pray it for all the people of Fairfield. I pray for my students, for my children. Have you seen Jesus like this? This is so critical in your life because if you haven't it probably means you have never taken up your cross either it's only when you've embraced the disruptive reality of cross bearing that you finally feel the desperate need to truly see Jesus for who he is. Do, do you get that? This friend of mine who the, the transcendental meditative guy and Buddhism guy he's looking at me and said Andrew Do you really think God wants us to grovel? Don't you think he wants us to stand up on our own two feet and walk like men? I said, brother, I think he wants us to grovel so that we can stand up and walk like men. That's what I found in my life only when I discovered that I must carry a cross 
that I'm a sinner broken. I can't love others. I can't serve others. I looked at him and I said, listen, my struggle is with anger. I wish it wasn't, but I do. I'm a, I, 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 it's a c- consistent. I hate it, but I wish it wasn't in my life. But it's in that struggle that I discover, discover how much I need Jesus. When I discover that I need a cross and I deserve a cross, that's when I realize I must have a glorious Savior. You following me? That's what Ryan did, this friend of mine doesn't get. He thinks he can stand up on his own two feet by himself. He's never taken up a cross for himself because he doesn't believe he needs it. And my fear is that can be many in the pews. You don't ever see Jesus in all of his glory, which is the great invitation of this passage, because you've never understand your own need for a Savior. You've never understood the disruptive nature of this Christian message to come and die to yourself and live for a God and live for others in ways you've never ever dreamed possible. Let me remind you how the transfiguration ended. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This is the essence of Christianity. Not trusting in yourself, not trusting in your religion, not trusting in your parents' goodness, your works, your real estate, your car, not trusting in anything else but Jesus only. Everything else fades away and you see him, the risen Savior, the only one, the suffering servant that can rescue you. Why is this true? I hope you know this. But if you don't, the rest of Mark will explain it to you. You see, everyone else on the mountain is gone. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. They cannot save the disciples. But there stands Jesus. Ready to walk from that mountain to another mountain, Calvary. To die on that cross for those very disciples and for each of us. Willing to say, this is the way of glory. It's the way of the cross. I must come down from the mountain, down into the grave, bearing your sin, bearing your shame, to rise again forever. Victorious. Now the triumph. But the triumph comes through the cross. That is the invitation of Christianity. When you will lay your life down into Jesus, you finally find that you can rise again in him. That is the beauty of this religion and of this message. Have you seen him like this? For you see, there's no other map, there's no other route, there's no other path, there's no other way than the way of the cross. If there was, wouldn't Jesus, the Messiah, the risen King, the Supreme Lord, the, the one who knows everything, wouldn't he have gone another way? If there was any other way, wouldn't God Almighty have gone another way? But he didn't. This is the only way. Transfiguration confirms Jesus' upside-down kind of living. Mark shows us that if we will truly understand our discipleship of cross-bearing, we must understand Christ and all of his cross-bearing. We must look to him. That is will be the key that will enable you, empower you to go and love, go and serve, go and die to yourself. That means is that your experience of Jesus, your understanding of who he is and the life he lived and the way he lived it is the power for you to live similarly. You will be able to lay everything down and take up your cross only when you reach the day that you no longer see anyone else but Jesus only. That is my hope for you. That is my hope for this church. That is my hope for Fairfield. I've been telling people, when they ask me, I'm moving from North Carolina to Connecticut. Everybody's going the other way, Right? And that's what everybody says is, what? Everyone, you know, my cousin just went, my brother just went, my, you know, really? What are you doing? And the answer in my heart, my wife's heart, for both of us, for our girls, 
is I'm going because I want to see Jesus more. That's it. That's why I'm going. Completely selfish. I want to know Jesus in all of his glory. And so if the cross takes me to Connecticut, so be it. Wherever that might be for you, I invite you. Do you not want more of him? And the invitation is to go the way of the cross that you might rise with him in all of that glory. That's why your pastor moved here to start this church. Why Adriana's here and others that have served. It's why many of you that have professed faith, I know there's many in this room that have come to Christ in the last several years. It's because you saw that there is a glory out there, but it's only found in the way of the cross. It's only found as I die to self, offering myself fully into Christ, that he then gives me himself and his resurrection power, and I rise both now and ultimately forever into that life of glory beyond. What's the way of the cross for you this morning? really encourage you to consider that. What is the way of the cross for you this morning? What is that thing that the Lord has been prompting you, pushing you, that recurring pattern, that stronghold that just you think will feed you and minister to your soul and refresh you, but it just never works? That call, that challenge, that offer of sacrifice to another that you've just been unwilling to do, what is the way of the cross? I invite you I don't have to charge you, I hope. I don't have to shake my finger. I invite you to the glory found in Christ, to know him more. That's what's on the other side of that. Isn't that so beautiful? You finally, why should I stop this bitterness and jealousy towards this member of my family? Why? Is it just so I'll be healthy and whole and more, have a better relationship? That is, that is there. But the ultimate reason is because there's Jesus on the other side. There's more of the living God on the other side of that. Lay it down. Lay yourself down for others. That is the invitation of grace. That is the gospel motivation for us to be ethical, moral, godly individuals. Let me give one final application. I'm already beyond, but this is so rich. I got to give it to you, all right? Some of you, I hope, are convicted and passionate. You're saying, I want more of Christ. But if only I could see Jesus like the disciples saw him on the transfiguration. You're like, that's the trump card. You're dropping it down on me as the preacher. You're like, that's it. Well, if I was like Peter and James and John and stood up there on the mountain, of course I'd be able to walk the way of the cross. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter, page 1019. I've got to read this to you. Because listen to how Peter describes this. Peter's answer to that question or that argument in your heart. Peter who stood on the mountain. Peter who heard the voice of God. Peter who experienced fully Jesus in all of his glory in that moment. And here's what he says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He's talking about the transfiguration this very moment. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain and we, each of us, the church of God, we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Do you see what Peter is saying? 
He's saying, we have a more sure word. I stood on the mountain, and we have a more sure word right here in the Bible. This is just mind-boggling. It's sitting on our shelves. It's next to our bedstands. And he's saying, this is the moment. You want to see Jesus in all his glory? It is right here in the pages of the scriptures. You open it up, and the light of Christ shines forth with his audible word to you, coming forth in the pages of the scriptures. This is why we come on Sundays and we hear the word preached this is why we study the Bible on our own. It's because here is the more sure word, the, the means by which God ministers himself to us every single day. You want to follow Jesus only? I just invite you to wake up every morning and see Jesus in all of his glory in the pages of the scriptures. Find him in Genesis. Find him in the prophets. Find him in the New Testament. Find him in Revelation. Find him everywhere because he's there. The more sure word declaring himself to you in page after page of God's audible voice coming to you in the scriptures. When you see him in his glory, then you'll see that Jesus plus nothing is everything. Because you'll no longer see anyone but Jesus only. We come now to another place that God displays Jesus in all, all of his glory. Here at the table. Lord's table, this communion service that Christians across the globe throughout the history of the church have celebrated. In many respects, what the Lord's Supper is, this is a living sermon. It's a holy sacrament. Year after year, we get to come and we have an opportunity to see Jesus on display. In a way, his death and his resurrection here on display in the Lord's table. Again, it's another, it's an invitation. It's an invitation for us to contemplate the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ for our sins. What that means, it's also an opportunity for us to participate with him. I hope you just try to imagine how even all that we've been talking about together and looking at in Mark, how that comes into fruition here in the table. As Christ offered himself, laid his life down here, breaking of his body, pouring out of his blood, here we partake of those same things. We're identifying ourselves with them, truly spiritually being nourished by Christ, but also there's an acknowledgement that as you are Christ, so am I. As you went the way of the cross, so do I. That's what's happening at the Lord's Supper. This is a table for those of you who've seen Christ in all of his glory. Those of you who've professed faith in him and have acknowledged that he is the Lord and Savior, the Christ, the risen one, the supreme Lord. You want all of him, this table's for you. If you're a member of an evangelical church, so some of you might be guests, but you're members of a church, if you're in right fellowship with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're not under any language we would use, under any discipline, then this table's for you. Now, for some of you, maybe there's some who haven't walked those mountains yet with Jesus. You haven't yet gone up to the Tahai Mountain and seen him in all his glory. You haven't yet gone to Calvary and seen him on that day dying for you. I still would say to you that this is an invitation as well. This table is a chance for you to sit and watch. What you're watching is all these Christians here in this room, as they come forward and in many respects profess that we believe that Christ truly is who he said he is. He really is the Messiah. He really did die for me, and I am placing my life in him. And so it's a chance for you to contemplate that and to hear Christ inviting you someday upon your point of you seeing him in all his glory to this table as well. chance for you to see that 
There's no sinner too far away. You might know some of the people in this room. <laughs> and you might watch them come forward and take this cup and you realize, wow, there must be no sinner who's too far away for Jesus to save him. <laughs> and that's one of the points. That if Jesus can save the likes of this, this group, surely he can save me. That's what communion is all about. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would consecrate this moment, not just in our hearts, but even here at this table, that you would once again continue to condescend and speak to us, taking these simple elements and making them your own and using them to nourish us, to empower us, to fill us with faith that then allows us to move from Sunday to Monday, from this moment into the next moment, and every day seeing you in all of your glory. Pray that you prepare our hearts for this and that we would truly be nourished spiritually by your Son through His Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray.